Thank you for listening to this message from Waynesboro Free Methodist Church. Our mission is to multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We hope this message helps you along your journey. Good morning, church family. How are we? It's good to see all of you. If you brought your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn with me to a very uh, common Advent passage, Exodus 19. (laughs) Exodus 19. I'm not kidding, though. We are going to go to Exodus 19, um, though the joke was that it's a very common Advent passage. Exodus 19. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one underneath your seat or the seat next to you or in the seat back right in front of you. We'd love for you to join me there in Exodus chapter 19. And guys, I'm just going to go ahead and be very, very frank with you. Today will probably make you very uncomfortable. Today's going to probably make you very uncomfortable because I'm going to start out with this. Do we actually believe this is true right here and right now? Do we actually truly believe that God, this reality that God is right here among us right now? Like, we, 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 we believe that, that Jesus isn't the only semblance of God with us, that his presence is actually here among us right now, that he is dwelling with us here in this place, not because it's a special room, but because you guys came with him, and you'll leave with him. And the, the fact that God is with us right here, right now, ought to make us tremble. It ought to sober us up, to make us, to, 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 to make us really low, because he's here right now, and, and you know what that means is that means that he could show up in really unbelievable ways. He could do incredible things, incredible meaning unbelievable, things that, that were, are, are beyond all of our wildest imaginations. He could show up in incredible, miraculous ways if he desired to. Because like we, when we talk about God being with us, when we talk about his presence, like you and I, we need to already come to the text with the understanding that there's a difference between God's omnipresence and his manifest presence. Do you understand the difference? His omnipresence means that he is in all place at all times, aware of all things, holding all things together, right? And so, so we talk about that in the sense of like common grace, right? Common grace meaning there's good things that both believers and non-believers receive from the Lord in their good gifts. A common grace is God's omnipresence, but there's another kind of grace, God's special presence, his, his manifest presence, his revealed glory. It's where he is and doing powerful things and working miracles and supernatural things. He's flexing in those spaces. So like you can see it in the old covenant, right? In the old Testament, God was in all places. All the nations were his, but, but, but we see him especially present like in the burning bush, and we see him manifest his presence in the tabernacle when the, t- the pillar of fire fell. We see his presence going forward uh, and leading the Israelites through the wilderness. We see his presence crash into the temple. So we see not just his omnipresence, but his manifest revealed presence in the Old Testament. We not only do see that in the Old, but we see it in the New Covenant too. We see in the New Testament. We see Jesus is the revealed manifest presence of God among us. Even though he's also omnipotent, right? He's also omnipresent in all places. 
So he's, he was, he, like God was everywhere, but he's also manifested himself in Christ, in the person of Jesus. And Jesus rose from the dead, and he's alive today. And I would just venture to ask you, if, what if, what if instead of me walking up here today, it was Christ Jesus, the resurrected Son of God? What if it was him who came up? What, how would you respond? Would you... Okay, whoa, it's G. What, what are you going to do today? You would have this sense of radical anticipation for what he might do, right? Because you know he might just be like, hey, you're healed, <laughs> right? Oh, and you, yeah, your, your problems, you're good, right? Oh, and that sin in your life, we've got to call that out, right? Like, he would do that, right? We'd have this sense of anticipation of what he might actually do among us. And the reality is, the resurrected son did come up. Because his spirit fills this place. His spirit spoke this word into existence. Jesus is the word of God himself. And so God being here right now among us means that we ought to seek from him and ask of him to move in powerful ways, to to do incredible things in our life, to show grace where we need grace, to give justice where we need justice. So guys, when, when, when we're in this Advent season and we're talking about God with us, I'm not talking simply about the omnipotence or the omnipresence of God, that he's in all places at all times. I am talking about the manifest, revealed presence of God among us, that he would do supernatural things, that he would be near to us, that we would be with him, that he would be relating to us, convicting us, transforming us, going with us as we go with him. That he would actually be working among us. But you know, if that's what we seek, um, sometimes it gets a little inconvenient and a little dangerous, doesn't it? So uh, how many of you are familiar with uh, like a Peloton or a, a Nordic track. You know what those are? How many of you are familiar with those, right? I'm not asking how many of you own them because that'd be like a flex, right? Oh, yeah, I got a Peloton, right? No, what I'm saying is, do you know of these? So, so for those who don't know, these are basically like workout machines. They're treadmills, they're bicycles, they're, um, they're row machines, and they have an internet connection, and they have a really big screen right in front of you. And what they boast... Their advertisement is that you can go hike the Himalayas from your own home. You can go, you can go uh, ride the streets of France from your own home. You can, you can go row the Mediterranean, if you want, from your own home. Right in the comfortable, easy place of your own bedroom, if you want. If you have enough room for it. Like, like you can do all of this. In fact, you can even schedule it, Right? You can schedule the time for your friends to hop on the same hike and hike the Himalayas together. But it's artificial, right? It's all on this screen. You feel like you're getting a workout, but it's not the same thing. It's entirely different in nature, right? So, so, so it's, it's really different from, like, say, hiking the Himalaya mountains, right? Very different, right? Like, if you were to actually go hike the Himalayan mountains, wouldn't there be, like, a certain level of inconvenience and a certain level of cost and maybe a certain level of danger as you're hiking? Isn't there? It's very real about it, right? Like, you don't know if a storm's going to roll in. You don't know if a yak's going to get loose from its trailer and start chasing you. 
You don't know if uh, you're going to be getting to a part of the trail where there's this really small, narrow path, and you've got a careening gap down beside you. You don't know how dangerous that could be. You don't know if a bad step might cause an injury. You don't know if a panda's going to start running after you, right? Like so many things could happen when you're actually in the real. But instead, you can have this artificial machine in your own home that takes away all those threats, that takes away all the risks and all the inconveniences, and it provides you somewhat of a workout experience. You, you feel, the, you feel the, 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 the natural chemicals that come out of a good workout, right? It makes you feel better about yourself, or maybe you feel worse about yourself, right? Can we not do church the same way? Can we not do the Christian life in a way where we replace the real with the artificial. We can, we, can, we can put together some sort of experience. We can even schedule it and say, everybody jump on at 1045, no matter where you are, right? And we're going to have this experience together. It'll make you feel certain things, right? You, you might feel something, right? And we can do it over and over and over and over again. And we keep trying to find ways to play this safe. To, to play our relationship with God safely. And so we construct easygoing church services that make us feel better about ourselves, that might stir up some emotions. Guys, trust me, I've, I've been doing this long enough to know I can, I can get some passions moving, right? Like it's so easy for us to be content with artificial, because it's easier, because it's safer, because it's less risky, and it doesn't cost as much. It's less dangerous for us. Guys, I mean, I mean, if you look at just what the early church looked like, how many times do we see the lives of the apostles and the prophets get so interrupted with their plans, right? Like, the early church was, it was unsafe. It wasn't predictable, God kept doing really impossible things. He kept showing up in miraculous and powerful ways to expand his kingdom. Like, it was a risky thing to say you follow Jesus just a few years in, right? Like, like you could get thrown into prison. You could get stoned to death. You could be shipwrecked on an island if you wanted to. You would be bitten by snakes. You would be brought before governing authorities, potentially executed. But all the while, as you're engaging in those spaces where those risks might be at play, you're seeing buildings shake while you pray. You're seeing people healed. You're seeing the demonized set free. You're seeing sinners absolutely convicted of their sin and repenting and turning to Christ. You're seeing that in massive numbers. As you're in that space where there's risk and danger, but you're with the Lord, there's going to be earthquakes breaking prison doors. There's going to be resurrections from the dead. Guys, they literally experienced real and powerful movements of God. Not just some man-made artificial experience. So my prayer with this whole series is that we can no longer, that we will end up being no longer content with the easy, with the planned, and with the comfortable. And that sometimes that the, the, the man-made artificial way of church and the artificial man-made way of following Jesus will be totally undone among us. 
And what will be renewed in us is that we're totally sold out to seeking intimate presence of God with us, that we would seek him moving in power in us and among us, even being okay with the risks and the dangers and all the unexpected that comes in that sphere, even the costs. Because guys, you know that there's a cost to follow Christ, right? You know that there's a cost. The cost might cost you uh, like time that you could have been doing something else that you preferred. Uh, the, the cost could be that you, 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 you end up having an empty wallet because you just gave it to somebody in need, right? The, the cost may be that you have to reroute your whole day and your whole travel plans because the Lord's given you a time and a place to meet up with someone that you don't even know and God said they were gonna be there and they needed his word and he was sending you to go. That's what it can mean, potentially, if you decide that you want to be intimately near the Father and following his will. It might cost you a lot. It might be inconvenient, but I'm promising you that intimacy with God and his spirit in you is far better. And what's crazy is you can have it. You can have it. It is available to you Right now, you can have God right here, right now. And that's exactly what we were honing in on last week with last week's message, the idea that, that, that this whole concept, it's even just simply in the name of Jesus, which is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. You can have that right now. But obviously, I don't think it's just that simple. Scripture doesn't let us believe that way. You might know that to be true in theory, and you might actually be connecting with the reality. We're not just talking about the omnipresence of God, but the re- revealed manifest presence of God. But, 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 but you can believe all that. You can, you're now probably convinced of that potentially, and, and yet you're not experiencing the intimacy with God in your own walk with Christ. Even if you're seeking it. You may not have known that that was the whole point of the Christian life. Maybe today you're realizing, wait, wait. So that's what it means to follow Christ is actually like to be in relationship with him, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. And maybe you didn't know to seek it. And now you are going to start seeking it. Praise God. But maybe, maybe you have been seeking it. And you still feel very distant. You still feel very far off from the Lord. And I, I admitted that last week. I told you guys that that's kind of where I felt I was last Sunday, and uh, this week I set out to, to get clarity from the Lord as to why that might be. Why might it be that we in our Christian walk can feel very distant from the Lord, even though we're believing his word and still trusting his son? Why might it be that we feel distant? Well, today we're going to look at that. Today we're going to look at two main things. What might get in the way and what is the price that we must pay? What might get in the way of intimacy with God? And what is the price that must be paid for intimacy with God? So what can hinder it? What can interrupt it? And then what is the cost for it? Those are the two quick things that we're going to be looking at. So I told you to be in Exodus chapter 19. It's about time we got into God's word, isn't it? Exodus 19. So we're going to be walking through various passages. We're going to follow a story. I don't have a specific text that we're going to walk verse by verse. We're just going to go storyline. 
And, uh, and so all the passages in Exodus that I'm going to point you to, you follow along in your own Bible. So we'll be like in Exodus 19, 20, 24, 33. We'll be all over the place. So keep your fingers ready to turn your, your books, your Bibles. Uh, there are going to be other passages that we're at. They're going to be up on the screen for you as well. So let me set the context for Exodus chapter 19. Remember, God has just miraculously freed Israel from slavery to Egypt by uh, performing 10 signs or plagues, right? And, and finally, they let the people go, and God then safely sees Israel through the death of the Red Sea. Sea often symbolizes death, and they're seen not just out of slavery, but out of death as well. And so God sees them safely through the Red Sea too. Not only that, but he defeats, totally demolishes their pursuing captors as they're coming after them. And so Israel is out on the other side of the Red Sea and God is drawing them out of all of that to draw them into himself. He draws them out to draw them in, to nearness with him. And God brings them to Mount Sinai in the Sinai wilderness. In fact, chapter 19, if you want to look at verse 3, Scripture calls that mountain the mountain of God. It's the mountain of God, and that's where Moses goes up to meet with God. Remember, they've just come out of, uh, and they've had some, some experiences of God's favor in the wilderness already with water from the rock, with quail, and, and with manna and things. And here we are. He's brought them to his holy mountain. And I've heard it said that, that the next few chapters that we're in is almost like a romance, where God is romancing his people so that they can draw nearer to one another. And look at what God promises to do for Israel. Look at verse 3, and then we'll read that all the way to verse 6. Verse 3, Moses went up the mountain of God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So can't you see what God wants to do for Israel? Not only what he's already done, but what he still wants to do for them. And can't you see that out of all the nations of the earth that are his, remember his omnipresence, his omnipotence, he specifically wants the Israelites. He wants them to be their, his people, his possession, which means they're not lost to him, they're near to him. God is promising to be with them, to be his, their God and them his people. And Moses tells the Israelites this. He goes back down the mountain. He says, this is what God wants to do. But the condition was what? They'll, they'll have this if they do all that God says. And so look at verse 8. Look at what they say. Verse 8, then all the people responded together. Well, yeah, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's word back to the Lord. So, so they, they're starting to agree. They're starting to make their covenants and you know how important a covenant is to defining a relationship? We do it when we marry one another, don't we? We say, here's my end of covenant. Here's what I'm going to do. 
And I'm going to pursue excellence in all that I do for you because I'm sold out to loving you. And then the other person stands and says their vows. We see God making his vows and the people making theirs in this intimate relationship between God and his people. So then, after this happens, God says that he's going to come down onto this mountain, right? In this fiery cloud. But before he does, he requires they do something. Look at verse 11 and 12 in chapter 19. 11 and 12. Be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord, Yahweh, will come down the Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain must be put to death. Whoa. That's how someone's vows ended in their marriage relationship. We'd have some issues. Be like, need some marriage counseling, right? But what does God do? He puts limits. He puts borders. People can't just waltz up the mountain of God and, and be with him. Why? Well, because one of the first things that you and I have to grasp, have to understand about the very nature of God when we're seeking intimacy with him is the first easiest principle that you probably already know. God is what? Holy. holy. God is holy. So one author says it this way, that the holiness of God refers to the absolute moral purity of God and the absolute moral distance between God and his human creatures. In other words, God is morally perfect and he's infinitely superior in that quality. Fallen humanity cannot safely dwell in his presence and live. And so he sets up boundaries in this relationship, to keep people safe from him. But you know, when we talk about intimacy with God, one of, the, one of the things that we never try to bring up is God's holiness. Because that means it ha- we have to be clean. That means we can't be that messy, can we? we? We feel like we have to clean ourselves up when we talk about God's holiness. And that's not a wrong instinct, but it's not ultimately the gospel. But when we talk about intimacy with God, holiness is often not in view. But I'm telling you, holiness should be the first place that we start. And here's why. God's holiness has massive implications on intimacy with him, on relationship with him. And one of the first things that that, that it, it does is it makes him the most trustable person ever. Think about it. Jackie Hill Perry in her book, Holier Than Thou, she just, uh, it just published a few years ago. Jackie O'Perry, she said it this way, if God is holy, which is true, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. And if he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? So this means that God is never the cause of broken relationship with him. He's never the reason or the, 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 the initiator of why we feel distant, of why intimacy might be disrupted at some point between you and him. He is never the reason we will feel far from him. 
And guys, one of the things that's so vital in our understanding of intimacy is that we're talking about in that quote and in this passage, some of the foundational building blocks of any kind of relationship that's going to be intimate. Is it not? So, so think about it this way. Can you be intimate with somebody you don't trust? Absolutely not. You can't, you can't feel warmth and close to somebody that you, that, that's, that's just untrustworthy, that you don't trust. But you can't trust somebody who isn't excellent or isn't good, right? If they're constantly lying, stealing, like bartering, manipulating, whatever, right? Like, like you just can't trust somebody who's not good. So if, 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 if there's not goodness, then there's no trust. And if there's no trust, then there's no intimacy. And how will you know if somebody's good morally, if they have good character, if you don't at least experience them, if you don't know them? So what we're saying here is because God is holy, knowing him is that, because he is already that, regardless if you know him as that or not, he is morally excellent, which means he can do you no wrong, which means he is the best person and the best being to trust, which means he is probably the most, he definitely is the most excellent being to pursue intimacy with it. Out of all people, out of all persons and beings existing today, or throughout all of history, he deserves to be pursued with the highest level of intimacy and affection because he is most worthy to be trusted because he's holy. And because he's holy, he sets up these boundaries. He has his people's good in mind. The safety of Israel. Now, continuing on in this story, look at verses 16 through 19. On the third day, you remember that was the day that God had said he would come? When morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain. You remember I was talking about hiking in the Himalayas, you didn't know if a storm would roll in? And a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. You see how incredible that is? Isn't that by, like both really attractive and terrifying? Isn't that like... Like, whoa, and then whoa, right? Like, it looks dangerous. And at this point, we start to see God establishing the arrangements of the covenant of the intimate relationship between him and his people Israel. And so, so at this point, I'm, I'm going to just start paraphrasing some things and, and, and recalling some different sections. Remember at this point, we're, we're at Exodus 19, and all of the Israelites, including Moses, are now down at the bottom of the mountain. And we get to Exodus chapter 20. And what, what we know comes from Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments. All of Israel is hearing God speak from the top of this mountain that's billowing with fire and smoke and lightning and thunder are crashing out of it. And they hear God say, I am the Lord your God. 
And the first command he gives them, you shall have no other God before or beside me. And then secondly, he crashes from the mountaintop and says loudly, you shall not make for yourself an idol and worship and bow down to it. And then we see third, don't misuse my name, which is Yahweh, your God. And then so on and so forth. The first four Ten Commandments deal with people's relationship with God. And then the last six deal with people's relationship with people. And God is calling them into the moral goodness that's required for trust and then intimacy. It's one of the building blocks there. And so that happens in Exodus 20, and then Moses goes back up the mountain, and he receives more commands from God from chapters 21 to 24. Go ahead and start flipping to chapter 24, if you would. He starts getting these commands from God about adultery, about immorality, about property, about capital offenses, about honesty and justice, about festivals and Sabbaths. And then we're in chapter 24, and after all that God has commanded his people, Moses comes back down, and he tells the people all that God's commanded them. And he asks, will you do this? And the people's response in verse 3 of chapter 24, then all the people responded with a single voice, we will do everything that the Lord has commanded. And so they agreed. And so what Moses does then is he writes all that God has commanded him on this massive parchment, a scroll. It's called the covenant scroll. And what he does the next morning is he goes out. They make tons of sacrifices, fellowship sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings to the Lord. And Moses takes the blood of these animals and he goes to the people and he asks them again, will you do everything that God has commanded you? And look at verse 7 of chapter 24, verse 7. The people, they responded, we will do and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Look at verse 8. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. Now, uh, that kind of splash zone isn't one that I'm familiar with, but there's a key element here where this blood is what seals the covenant. It's what affirms it and confirms it with God and man, this blood. So keep that in the back of your head as we keep going. Look at what happens next after this. Verse 9. Then Moses went up the mountain, but he didn't go by himself this time. He went up with who? Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of Israel's elders. And they saw the God of Israel. They saw God. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank in his presence. So we see more people starting to get to go into God's presence, covered by the blood of the sacrifices, and they start to get to enjoy God safely. They get to see him, and they get to eat and drink in the presence of God. Like, that is crazy. Wouldn't that be awesome? Like, I don't know, but this is looking real good. Like, like, this is amazing. Like, if, if this just keeps building and building, this is awesome. Like, it's happening. Nearness with God. And then 
the arrangements keep going. We see chapters 25 through 31. Moses, with Joshua, his assistant now, goes back up the mountain, and they start to receive commands and instructions about what's called the tabernacle. Can you say tabernacle? The tabernacle is the portable temple of God, as easy as you want to call it. It is a place where God's presence was going to manifest in a, in a tent-like structure that would go with the people wherever they went. And so, so uh, God is giving them instructions on how to build it, with the elements that need to be put into it. But he's preparing himself, he's preparing Israel for that day when he's going to dwell, in them, uh, um, uh, dwell among them in this tabernacle. And so he's up there, he's getting these commands. And if you know your Bible well enough, you know, you know how the story goes. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And keep in mind, Israel is at the bottom of the mountain. Moses with Joshua, they're at the top, and the mountain is still on fire. And smoke is billowing from it, lightning and thunder. And what happens? Turn to chapter 32. Exodus 32. The people think that Moses is delayed. They think he's, something's happened to him. He shouldn't be up there this long. Trust me, if, if we had that kind of access to the presence of God and we were safe in it, I'd be there for my whole life. Moses wasn't delayed. They just weren't operating on the same timetable that God was. Look at verse 1 and 2. The people go to Aaron, which is Moses' brother, and they say, Come, make gods for us who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Like, like, like seriously? Moses wasn't the one who brought them out of Egypt. It was God himself. And they see God's presence on the top of the mountain, but here they are concerned about a man, the go-between. And so what does Aaron do? Aaron collects all of their gold, takes an engraving tool, and he fashions together a golden calf. And he says to the people, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And they make an altar to it, and they throw a party, and they make offerings to it, and in doing all of that, they break trust. They break their covenant already. They run right into immorality and wickedness. And you remember, what, what's required for intimacy? Trust. And what's required for trust? Goodness. That's exactly what gets lost. You see, Moses comes back down the mountain after God brings attention to him about what's happening down in the camp. Moses, in a rage, throws the tablets down that had all of God's commands on it, showing that they've already broken the covenant. They've already broken the law. And he takes the calf and he grinds it down into powder. He puts it in the water, makes everyone drink it. They become sick and then Moses starts a civil war. 3,000 men die that day. 
tells the people, I'm going to go back up. I'm going to see if I can have God be merciful to us. I'm going to intercede for our behalf. So he goes up and look at chapter 33. Flip there. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses. Go up from here. You and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hethites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. Can you see how God still graciously offers to them everything He's promised them? Regardless of their rebellion and their immorality and their adultery and their idolatry, He still offers them the promised land. He still offers them protection. But what changes? He won't go with them. The presence of God withheld. You see, that's paradise lost. Not the promised land. If they didn't make it to the promised land, who cares? It's it's God himself. And God's saying, I'm not going to go with you. And what caused it? How did they lose the withness of God? It was their sin. You see, one of the things that I've been scared to admit for several portions of my life is this heartbreaking, sobering reality is that iniquity interrupts intimacy. Can you say that with me? One, two, three. Iniquity interrupts intimacy. As you already know this to be true, husband and wife, the husband goes and, 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 and wanders off and sleeps with another woman, right? You, intimacy is lost because the husband was immoral. You've already, you know that reality horizontally. It wouldn't just, why wouldn't it make sense just to carry it vertically? I mean, God says this several times. He says, Isaiah 59, he says, your iniquities are separating you from your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. He also says in Micah 3, then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. As our iniquity interrupts our intimacy with God, just like Israel's did here, they broke the the covenant that they had with God. They broke the first and the second commands. Like they they had 10 jobs and they broke the first primary ones already. They wandered off into idolatry. And you see here, we see that the iniquity described is actually idolatry. As idolatry is something that you and I all will struggle with. And it's something that we're all guilty of. 
Like even right now, there may be an idol that you're worshiping instead of God. Now you might say, well, Scott, I don't have a, I don't have a golden calf in my living room that I get up every morning and pray to. I don't, I don't have that. Like, what are you talking about? Well, idols can come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. In fact, John Calvin says that our hearts are like idol factories. It can be sports, it can be money, it can be possessions, it can be electronics, it can be material possessions, it can be social media, it can be gaming, it can be popularity, it can be fame. Idolatry is a lot easier than you think. You know, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, did he tempt them with what seemed to be blatant idolatry? Did he say, worship yourselves? No, did he say, hey, worship me? No, what did he say? He said, that fruit looks good. Try it. And even there, withness with God, lost. Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit They idolize themselves, believing themselves over God. They they take of the fruit and eat it, and then God's presence manifested comes near, and they hide in shame. And God asks, where are you? You think he didn't know? He knew exactly where they were, but he is saying, you have been lost to me. Guys, the iniquity of idolatry will kill your intimacy with God. 100% of the time. Because God is a jealous God. There's a difference between jealousy and envy, right? Jealousy is what he deserves and it's not getting it. God rightly deserves all of our affections and all of our desires and all of our longings and all of our worship. And instead, here we are giving it to some idol. That idol might be consuming your time. It's definitely consuming your interests, your finances, your affections. Let me ask you this. Here's an easy way to identify it. What do you talk about most? What do you find yourself bringing up a lot? There might be an idol there. And you see, worshiping that idol has maybe become so commonplace, it's become so routine that you settle in with being content, with distance with God because you have your idol. You can, you can grow content with the distance, with the not feeling close to Him and His and, and, and it can even be that you're okay with it because as long as he's going to give you his blessings, as long as he's going to take you to the promised land, I can still be distant. Like you want his stuff more than him. Sorry, I'm getting on fire. Um, you see, just like Israel did with Moses, sometimes what we can do is we can even rely on other people's relationship and intimacy with the Lord, whether it's 
your pastor or a church leader or it's your spouse. You can just let them seek the intimacy and, and engage in the dangers and the risks are involved, that are involved with nearness with God and following Christ wherever he would lead. But you're okay being off on the side and let them do the crazy, do the radical following of Jesus. You can kind of just hear what they're getting from God. They've gone up the mountain. I'll just, what'd you, what'd you just tell us what God told you. You see, all of this kind of idolatry and sin can get in the way, and it can interrupt your intimacy with God. And if you grow content with it enough, you'll be okay with distance. You see, that's why in the New Testament it's called grieving the Holy Spirit. You see, I mean, I'm jumping ahead in the narrative. God's Spirit dwells in every believer who has called upon the name of Christ and has been saved by Him. And Ephesians 4 says that you and I have the capacity to make God sorrowful, to grieve His heart by living like we're lost people. By lying, by stealing, by being bitter, by being unforgiving, by being sexually immoral, we can grieve God's spirit that now dwells in us. And not only that, but we don't, we, we can't, like not only can we, we grieve him, but we can also quench him. Isn't that crazy? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that God has granted to Christians the ability to restrict or release what the Spirit does in the life of the local church. You see, the Spirit comes to us as a fire, and that fire can either be fanned into full flame and given the freedom to have His way and accomplish His will among us, or we can douse it and extinguish the Spirit by the water of human sin and fear and control and flawed theology. Like, like, it's just an absolutely mind-boggling thing to think that an all-sovereign, almighty God in His wisdom and goodness allows us to resist the Holy Spirit and suppress His consuming fire in our lives. Guys, our sin will get in the way of intimacy with God. And we know that in His presence, there's fullness of joy. And that that joy is our strength. So if we're content with distance, we're probably content with a joyless life. Our sin gets in the way. And we can grow so easily content with it. Israel shows us this very vividly with their own idolatry. And God's response is, I won't go with you. But is that how the story ends? No. Praise God. No. You see, Moses goes back up the mountain. He begs for mercy. He intercedes for Israel. He begs for the Lord to go with him. And what's God's response? Look at verse 14 in chapter 33. Verse 14, and the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. (laughs) He still goes with them. He still goes with them, but it's all on a pretty major condition. You see, to keep sin out of the way and atoned for, there has to be a price to pay. 
I told you we were going to talk about what might get in the way and the price that has to be paid. So here we are at this point. You see, from this point on in the narrative, God's presence, he, it fills the tabernacle. And then when the temple is built, when they're finally in the promised land, his presence fills the temple. And yet daily sacrifices of spotless, unblemished animals are made. And their blood's poured out, sprinkled on the different elements of the tabernacle and of the temple to keep sin out of the way. And so God's manifest presence goes with them and stays with them for generations until what happens again? Israel gets caught up in idolatry and they start worshiping foreign and false gods. They're, they're then conquered, they're then overrun, the temple is destroyed and they are exiled. And then 400 years of silence, nothing. Israel gets let back into Jerusalem. They try to build the temple again. No fire this time. No presence. Yet 400 years of silence and then finally God does show up. God's presence manifests in Emmanuel, God with us. You see, Jesus is God coming down that holy mountain, not requiring us to go up through the boundaries and borders that would ultimately kill us, but Jesus is God coming down the mountain so that we can go up with him. He empties himself of that terrifying and attractive glory he wraps himself in the cloak of humanity and he is born among us as a baby. And he grows up. He lives his life perfectly. He keeps all that the covenant requires of us and people start to hate him for it and they hang God with us on a tree. And with Jesus' last breath, we read in Matthew 27, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary that's in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Guys, remember how God's holiness demanded limits and boundaries? This curtain in the temple was one of them. It separated man from God's holy of holy place, right? And when Jesus' body is offered up in sacrifice and his blood is poured out, the blood of the unblemished, spotless lamb of God, that curtain, that boundary between God's presence and his people is ripped in half from heaven down to earth. You see, Hebrews 10 tells us exactly what that means. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, that's God's presence through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed and pure water. 
You see, Jesus offering up his blood was the final and ultimate sacrifice made so that we can draw near to God's presence, so that we can go in. And having been washed and cleansed by his blood, we can enjoy intimacy with God. We can have nearness to God so that we can enjoy at least a day in his presence, which Psalm 84 says is a better than a thousand elsewhere. So this means that the only way for you and I to ever truly enjoy intimacy in the presence of God with God, our creator, is through the shed blood of Christ. That is why we say Christ is all that we have. He's our only hope. Jesus, the Son of God, was born in a manger to die on a cross so that we could have God with us right here, right now. And even though our sin can sometimes, oftentimes get in the way of that kind of intimacy, it can interrupt it, the full price has been paid and we can never ultimately be taken away from it. And that means that every day of your life, every single moment, whether you are uh, uh, at your bed at night, you're in your bed and you are overwhelmed with sorrow because you've experienced incredible loss, or if you're out walking along the streets of Waynesboro or your town or in your neighborhood and, and you're, 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 you're just alone, you're not alone. God is right there with you and you can have God directing you and guiding you for all that he plans to do and purposes you for. Every day you can walk with God in every moment. And if you plead the blood of Christ, you will have fresh grace. You can walk with God in every moment with all the unexpected, all the dangers that that can bring. Being fully aware of and in deep appreciation for the blood of Christ. So with all of this, I just have to ask you, how, how can you hold on to your idols any longer? How are you able to remain content with the distance that your sin is bringing you? You were, you were made to be in God's presence. That's the purpose of your existence. Are you willing today to cast down your idols, to give up those things that are in the way? The truth is, I haven't been for a little while. And the distance that I described to you last week was explained in my studies this week. And I am no longer content with the distance or the idolatry. Are you? Or are you willing to enter into the very gift that Christ's blood freely purchased for you? The presence of God with you. 
We hope this message helps you multiply faithful followers of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit waynesboroughfm.com.